Well, this is our lectionary Bible study, and uh, Happy New Year to everybody. We're resuming our study. This is for the first Sunday after Epiphany. Today is the Feast of the Epiphany, um, and this is year B, uh, although, no, it does, it does rotate on, on this occasion. Let's begin with the collect. Let us pray. Father in heaven, who at the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan didst proclaim him thy beloved Son and anoint him with the Holy Spirit, grant that all who are baptized into his name may keep the covenant they have made and boldly confess him as Lord and Savior, who with thee in the same Spirit liveth and reigneth one God in glory everlasting. Amen. Amen. These are not the proper readings. No, this is... Uh, Isaiah 42 is right, unless unless you just got the wrong address on the gospel. That should be Mark. It should be Mark 7 through 11. So that looks like that's what that is. Yeah, because it's... The next verse is 8, 9, and the last one is 11. Okay. Let me see. The Acts... That's, that's right. It's just labeled wrong. Copy and paste. Okay. And the psalm is right. Well, this is um, an occasion that has uh, altered in, in character. Um, if you go back and look at the old prayer book, the collects after Epiphany are very generic. They sound like summertime collects. They, you know, help us be on our best behavior kind of prayers. And then, uh, of course, back in the old lectionary, it's all the same. It doesn't alternate um, between three different years. And so after Epiphany, you have, there's, it's, I think, finding the child Jesus in the temple is the one that comes the Sunday after Epiphany. And then the second Sunday, you get the baptism, and I believe it's from Mark, which we have here in year B. And then the third Sunday, it's um, a wedding at Cana. And then after that, it's uh, probably miracles uh, and healings and things like that. They, when they rearranged everything, they, they wanted to make um, Epiphany more of a season. They got rid of all the octaves. The octaves are basically week-long festivals. The only octave really they kept, I guess, is Easter week. Um, and then the in that case, they didn't really call it an octave. Um, so it used to be that there was an octave of Epiphany, and then there was the Sundays after Epiphany. Um, but this is, I believe, I can't remember if in the 79 prayer book they make that switch or if it's not till 2019. No, so 2019, they still call it after Epiphany, Sundays after Epiphany. But in, 20, in, in 1979, they, they still call it after Epiphany. In 2019, they call it Sundays of Epiphany. So they've gone on to strengthen it more to try to make it a, a full-fledged season. But I've always thought that um, Epiphany and Christmas kind of fit together, um, much like, um, oh, what, what's the analogy here? Not Lent and Easter, but um, so it's like Christmas tide goes until Epiphany, but it also goes until Candlemas on February second. Yeah. 
So there's 40 days of Christmas and there's also 12 days of Christmas. And they all kind of like overlap and, and um, probably have different origins. The collect for this occasion, the first Sunday after Epiphany, um, is a new composition. Um, it was taken from a draft of a liturgy that they were working on in the Church of England, I think they said. Um, but it's basically a new one. Because really the commemoration is kind of a, a it's not a novelty, but it's a rearrangement of things. The, the origin of Epiphany is that um, it, it had a lot of things piled together, which in the West were peeled apart, and in the East were pretty much kept together. So sometimes you'll see Epiphany referred to as like Russian Christmas. Um, and the Eastern Orthodox and the Eastern Rites, Catholic Rites, have, have Christmas, um, but they tend to pile everything on to epiphany in terms of the commemoration. But the dominant one is that of the baptism of Jesus. So that's where you get the uh, significant day for the blessing of water, and uh, water is kind of the main theme. Um, in the Western Church, um, you peeled off the baptism, so it went to one side, and you peeled off the birth, and that went to the other side. And so the visit of the Magi was the main focus of the Feast of Epiphany in the West. And so here we have the commemoration of the baptism. So we begin by looking at Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. And in fact, he will kind of lay out uh, the dominant theme right off the beginning in the first verse, uh, I put my spirit upon him. So with that in mind, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry, nor lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So in this passage, the prophet is um, addressing Israel. And Israel, we, we've heard a lot about the suffering servant um, in the servant song section of, of Isaiah's book, which is coming up. And uh the suffering servant is sort of the personification of Israel. And, of course, when we look at it through the lens of Messianic prophecy, the suffering servant ends up being the Messiah himself. But, of course, in, in the more immediate audience, um, they're looking at um, Israel um, as the nation, as a person, has been suffering in exile. And uh, we look and long for the restoration. And here we have this calling out of my servant, my suffering servant, 
Um, and we have very much the scene that we encounter in the baptism of Jesus in the gospel. Because what does God say from heaven? Look, behold, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Almost says exactly the same thing here. Behold, my servant, uh, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I am well pleased with him. And, of course, we see the, des the descent of the Spirit at the baptism upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And uh, here we have the affirmation that God has sent down his Spirit upon him to um, basically um, bring him authority to function as the Son of Man, to be the judge of the nations, um, and to bring justice to the nations. So not just Israel, but personified Israel to uh, to to be that kind of priestly mediator between God and the rest of the whole world. Um, there's this description about him being meek and yet powerful. And when we get toward the end, we have some very messianic type of descriptions. Um, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the, from the dungeon, and so on. And in fact, um, if you recall, with uh, John the Baptist being in prison, and he sends his disciples to inquire about Jesus, and is he the Messiah? Should we keep waiting? What's the deal? And basically he says, well, go tell John what you see in here. You see these kind of messianic things that I'm doing. You see the blind regaining their sight, and you see um, the poor getting justice, and you see the freedom given to prisoners and so on, and uh, healing for the sick. What in the world is going on over there? <laughs> oh, it's your well, it's birthday calls probably. That's what it is. Put it on vibrate. Let's see. Anything else to point out about the suffering? Oh, and 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 God announces here, I'm about to do new things. I'm about to new, do new things in the world, and I am going to tell you about them before they come to pass. Well, let's go on to the psalm, Psalm 89. Let's see if this is attributed. Oh, interesting. A masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. Ethan the Ezraite, probably identical with Jeduthun, uh, re referenced in Psalm 39, though referring here to a descendant of the Ethan of David's time, which all adds up to another person I don't know, who's not mentioned very often. So this is an odd psalm, and then it has an, um, an unusual origin. When we get to verse 21 through 30, we read, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. My hand shall hold him fast, and my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not be able to do him violence. The son of wickedness shall not hurt him. I will smite down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. My truth also and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his dominion also in the sea, and his right hand in the floods. He shall call me, Thou art my Father, my God and my strong salvation, and I will make him my firstborn, 
higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will, my, will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. So here you have a, uh, the anointing of David as king. Um, I have found David my servant. Um, I have found the, the man after my own heart, the one that I want to make the permanent dynasty. I have anointed him with oil. That means um, basically the root word of the Messiah, anointed with oil, Christ. Um, I will uphold him in his ministry, in his service. Um, and I will establish the borders of his dominion. He calls me father, I call him son. I will make him strong. I will make him higher than the kings of the earth. And of course, all of these are allusions to the ultimate son of David, who does reign forever, and who does keep his covenant, and who um, is not in need of any mercy, but who extends God's mercy to others, and who is the firstborn um, in terms of divinity. Um, when it says, in my name shall his horn be exalted, a horn is usually a metaphorical reference to power. When he acts in my name, he will be unstoppable. Let's turn to the Acts of the Apostles. In Acts chapter 10. Acts is written by Luke. It's a sequel to his gospel. It tells about the early church. And of course, on Pentecost, we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's been promised and um, foreshadowed in the Old Testament and also an extended promise in the gospel with the baptism of Jesus, which we'll come to in just a moment. In chapter 10, they have already received the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit they go and, and preach, and they have a tremendous response. They have 3,000 converts on the first day. They continue to preach. They're um, put in jail. Um, an angel comes and busts them out. And here we get to the, I believe this is the reference to the uh, um, conversion of Cornelius. So in chapter 10, we have the story of Cornelius, who is the first Gentile. And of course, that's a big epiphany theme about God bringing his salvation to the nations. And he, every time we have um, the gospel and the kingdom crossing over a boundary line, um, like going into the Gentile world, going into Samaria, um, we have um, manifestations of God's presence and power of the Holy Spirit through miracles, through prophesying, through speaking in tongues, through various good good things like that, that tells us that God is indeed at work behind the scenes and improves of this sort of thing. And if you recall the wider story, we don't get the wider story here, but how um, an angel had appeared at Cornelius and said, you need to go see Peter. He's at this address. You'll find him there. And also the angel appears to Peter and says, I'm going to send somebody over there named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. And I know you're not supposed to let him in, but let him in. Um, we're going to do away with the old rules and barriers now. We're going to bring the Gentiles into the church. And Peter is 
I don't know if you'd say reluctant at first, but he's definitely taken off guard. He, he, was, he was not expecting this. Uh, but he comes around, and he, he comes around quickly at first, but you see some sort of lagging problems with Peter, like um, when Paul has to rebuke him because he's sort of uh, showing partiality in terms of being cliquish with the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. Um, he doesn't really want to fraternize with the Gentiles too much. Um, but here, in chapter 10 of Acts, verse 34 through 38, he shows what he has learned. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The word which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And of course, he doesn't stop speaking here. He goes on and talks about uh, how we were witnesses of all these things and God sent them out to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins and so on. And it's when we get down to verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. So a very important part of the early church history is this crossing of this, well, the, the biggest boundary of Jew and Gentile. So with Cornelius, we cross into the Gentile world and bring Gentiles into the kingdom. Now, that's something that's kind of foreshadowed with Epiphany, with the visit of the Magi, who are definitely Gentiles. They come from different nations. And also, we don't get any hint that they are Jewish. Um, they seem to be pagans. Uh, that seems to be how they got there through their astrology and their study of ancient prophecies. Now, we don't get a whole lot of information about them, but some of the lore that's come up about them is that they had a prophecy written, or a book written by Seth, the son of Adam. And uh, so they had long um, studied both of these things, the ancient wisdom and traditions of different civilizations, and also um, their belief that the stars gave them information like that. So these are definitely pagans, but they are the sort of the promise of what is to come. That indeed, as foretold a lot throughout the Old Testament, that the nations of the world would come around to belief in a one true God, the God of Israel, and that they would come to him, and that Israel's ministry was to be a witness to God, to be a, a minister, um, an evangelist, if you will. Now, these first two verses that we get here in this passage from Acts can be troublesome in the hands of a, of a, a preacher who, who isn't grounded in, in the fullness of the doctrine and, and gospel. So when we, when we get this 
Peter says, Truly I perceive God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So we could definitely pull, if we weren't grounded, a universalism out of that passage. And, okay, well, any nation, any background, any religion, doesn't matter as long as you have respect for God, then you're okay. You're saved. You don't have to worry about it. Um, but that's definitely not what Peter is saying. So what is he saying when you put Peter in context? Well, the context is that just a moment ago, he had no concept, really, uh, because his eyes had not been opened. He was familiar with the Old Testament passages, but but his his perception need, needed to be enlarged. Um, he, he didn't realize that he was going to witness right in front of him this lore of the Old Testament talking about all the nations coming and being a part of God's kingdom. But now he says, I get it. Understand, this is not something for a long time far off. This is now. Truly, I perceive God doesn't show partiality. He made the Gentiles. He wants the Gentiles to be a part of his kingdom. So he says, in every nation, in every non-Jewish nation, anyone who fears him, and that's not just a fear in terms of respect, but anyone who enters into a worship type of relationship with the one true God, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So in other words, this boundary and barrier of Jew and Gentile has been obliterated in the gospel. The gospel doesn't know any barriers. The kingdom doesn't know any barriers. Anyone who wants to be a part of the kingdom can be a part of the kingdom. And how do you do it? Well, he gets into that in the next couple of verses, um, talking about the baptism. So the baptism was for Jesus, but it doesn't stop with Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It's a way of incorporating us into Christ and joining us together with him forever. So basically, that's where we lead right into the gospel, which is from Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. John, John the Baptist, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. Echoing very much that opening line that we got from Isaiah. So John is the forerunner of the Messiah. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He's getting people to come down and want to start over as the nation of Israel, be baptized again, and basically come through the Jordan River again where they first crossed into the Promised Land. The baptism is something that he didn't invent. It was already there. It was the big mikvah washing, the full-fledged washing. You know, the Jews were always doing their purification rituals. And in, the, in, in Judaism, the mikvah is not just a one-time thing, but it's for uh, various occasions, um, and I, I don't have a list of all of them in my head. Um, I, it seemed like I remember one that, you, that a woman would have a mikvah 
at some point after childbirth, that uh, that's part of her purification ritual. But it was also, most, most importantly, and uh, related to this occasion, used for converts. So if you were coming in from another religion, um, you had to subscribe to the commandments and the Torah and uh, belief in the one true God, and you had to be circumcised if you were a male, and then the last step was you had this mikvah bath. So John is saying, basically, we need to all start over again. And he was getting people to confess their sins, not just that they were sinners and that they had fallen short, but their own individual transgressions and problems, repent of them, uh, retreat from them, go away from them, repudiate them, start a new life, start over. So his baptism was for repentance. But he already says... You know, I baptized you with water. I've given you a mikvah. But there's a more important kind of mikvah yet to come. There's this baptism immersion in the Holy Spirit. And the Messiah is the one that will basically finish what I have started. Um, so with John, you have uh, employed a ritual that's already there. But Jesus, in participating in it, will take it and transform it. So just as he did with other things, uh, like taking the Passover meal and transforming that into something more, um, taking simple things like anointing with oil and laying on of hands and transform them into something more. Here, he transforms it into something more by participating in it. And I think as it was Irenaeus of Leon who said, um, why, why was Jesus baptized? It wasn't to that the water would cleanse him, but that he would cleanse the water. And so he gets baptism ready for us, uh, so it can join us to him. So John baptized Jesus. In Mark's presentation of the gospel, each one is subtly different. In Mark's, he narrates it more as like an, an, the inner experience of Jesus himself. So this is something that he would explain to others afterward, that other people uh, probably wouldn't necessarily notice at the time. Um, see, verse 10, And when he came up out of, the, out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Now, it doesn't specify there whether only Jesus is hearing the voice or everybody's hearing the voice or whatever. It just says there was a voice. Thou art my beloved Son. With thee I am well pleased. And we get from the other Gospels that other people did uh, hear this voice. Uh, some understood it, some did not. Most, it seems, did not. They said, what was that? Was that a crack of thunder all of a sudden out of the blue? But the message of the voice is very much consistent with the opening of our passage from Isaiah. Behold my servant. We get almost the exact same thing. Where else? Later in the gospel. Anybody remember offhand? At the transfiguration on the mountain. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I don't recall whether we have the I am well pleased with him at that point. But that is the epiphany that comes at the baptism. That it is the manifestation of the divinity of Christ. And that's basically what epiphany is. It's, it's a manifestation of divinity. So Antiochus Epiphanes, um, 
I think his name was Antiochus, and he called, gave himself the title of Epiphanes because he says, I am the manifestation of God. You know. So that was a, a word that was employed in the ancient world in a common way. And here we, we have it taken by the church and applied to these events where we see, ha, here is one of those occasions when the divinity of God in Christ is manifested to the world. So it's manifested at his birth. Um, angels appear to shepherds calling them. So the Jewish people are called to come to his cradle. Um, they're, the Gentile magi are called to come to his cradle. So his divinity is manifested to them. And then, of course, it's manifested at the baptism. And then it'll be manifest again at his different miracles. So that is what Epiphany is all about. Well, thank you so much. Any thank other you. Thank you. questions, thank you. comments? Okay. Excellent.